Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Cambridge Judge Business School. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on corporate governance. Corporate governance includes the mechanisms and processes through which companies are controlled and directed. Is modern corporate governance fit for purpose, or are many companies, especially large multinational corporations, increasingly behaving badly by not looking after their customers or workers and creating a loads of money culture for their executives? Joining me to discuss this topic today are Professor Shaz Ansari, Professor of Strategy and Innovation, Professor Jennifer Howard Grenville, Diageo Professor in Organization Studies, and Dr. Simon Learmount, Lecturer in Corporate Governance and Fellow of Pembroke College. So welcome to the three guests today. Perhaps we can kick off um, with the fundamental question. We want our companies to be run well, um, but corporate systems of governance vary across the world. So, so what are the characteristics of an effective system of corporate governance? Simon, perhaps you could start us off. Okay, so I think the first thing to say is perhaps that there are two um, key and quite fundamentally different understandings of uh, corporate governance out there, which can lead to two uh, very different responses to your question, Michael. Um, first, there's a very narrow view of corporate governance, which comes out of the financial economics discipline and is quite strongly held in the financial markets and the investment community and so on. And it's based on the notion that an important characteristic of many companies is the potential misalignment of interest between a company's owners, which in the case of listed companies means its shareholders, um, and those of its managers and directors who, the theory goes, are motivated to prioritise their own interests, so pay themselves lots more money, engage in projects and ventures and so on that meet, meet their needs. So in this sense, corporate governance is all about ensuring that company directors and managers act in the best interest of these owners. Um, so an effective system of corporate governance in this sense means making sure that the incentive and control systems, the communication channels, the processes of accountability and so on are all functioning properly. Um, and making sure that directors and managers are focused on creating strong, profitable companies for shareholders. Um, when we see governance being discussed in the financial press or in the investment community, this is the mental model they're kind of subscribing to when they discuss good corporate governance. However, <clears throat> and it's a big however, as the discourse has developed over the last 25 years or so, I think this narrow view has been superseded by a much more inclusive, productive and, and a kind, kind of relevant understanding of what corporate governance is and therefore what effective governance means. Um, nowadays, I think the generally accepted definition of corporate governance is that it concerns the structures and processes by which organisations are directed and controlled. And please note there I say organisations. Um, effective governance is now understood to be relevant to all types of organisation. Yeah, family firms, not-for-profit firms, tech startups, public sector organisations. Universities. Universities even, yes. Um, not just the, those large public firms whose you know, shares are traded on the, the world's stock exchanges. And with the expansion of scope, I think has come a necessary expansion of what it means to, to have effective corporate governance. Um, the, the, the really superlative definition of, of um, what, this, what this entails comes in the latest UK Corporate Governance Code, which states really very, very clearly that the purpose of corporate governance is to facilitate effective, entrepreneurial and prudent management that can deliver the long-term success of the organisation. That's a long, long way away from that narrow definition of corporate governance that I mentioned previously. It means <coughs> governance 
effective governance is making sure you have the structures and processes, especially at the level of the board, but not, not exclusively, that can ensure the organisation is at the same time it's, it's competent and it's in control of the, the organisation. It's also dynamic and strategic um, and innovative. Um, the board's got to be focused on those things, but it's also judicious and it's in touch with, with the needs and demands of, of, of society. And when you think about it, this is a massive ask, basically. I mean, it means that governance is about reconciling all of these different different interests. So I think, I hope that kind of gives a sense of where the... Could, could I just push you going. on that before yes. we bring in our colleagues? Um, is that wider definition that you certainly implying is preferable to the narrow definition, um, is that wider, def wider definition still about maximising profits in the long run? Is it about the, still about the main interest being the shareholder? What about the workers? What about the customers? Very, what about very, the suppliers? It's a very important component of it. But the, the challenge for directors is reconciling all these competing and, and difficult challenges. How do you make sure that you meet the needs of shareholders, but at the same time, how do you recognise the contribution of employees, the importance of suppliers, also local community, the, 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 the role of government and regulators and so on. So it's bringing together all of those. Chas? Yeah, I mean, uh, totally agree with the, uh, with the more inclusive, wider definition. Um, I, I guess the, the reason why that first definition still there is the uh, because it was founded on the so-called agency theory agency logic so uh, people will uh, always be opportunistic unless there are enough governance controls mechanisms in place um, there was a nice paper uh, by uh, some colleagues at uh, northwestern at Jack and, and Jim Westfall which talked about how when that logic prevails so if you expect managers to be opportunistic and maximize their own uh, benefits at the expense of owners then you need all those things which you're saying is the conventional traditional definition. If you reverse the logic and say managers are good stewards of managing the organization well, looking after the owner's interest, and there's no uh, reason for them to be opportunistic and maximizing personal gains or take, I don't know, business class flights at the expense of owners' money, then, uh, then it's a different way of governance. And, and when, you, when you have shared buybacks, it actually reflects which logic is prevalent. So I agree with you that the second definition is obviously a better definition, more inclusive definition than the first one. But I think the first one still has quite a bit of prevalence and a bit of dominance, depending whether it's agency logic, agency theory logic, or a stewardship logic, which prevails uh, at a particular time in a particular context. And I would also probably qualify that the types of organizations that you said, we can include all types of organizations in this, uh, well, say, modified or more uh, wider definition of corporate governance. So. NGOs, NCOs, but then there are B Corps and benefit corporations and their cooperatives and their corporations and just the definition of how they're defined structurally uh, might be more or less conducive to the uh, type of uh, uh, definition you're talking about. So I th yeah, I'm not sure if that one size would fit all kinds of organizational forms um, that, you, that, that that definition should include ideally. Jennifer. So I think it's interesting that we have such clear perspectives, such clear, you know, you introduced Simon by saying there are really two historical models that have been applied to thinking about corporate governance. These might align with two different logics. Um, we like to talk about the trade-offs or which is right. Um, you know, Michael, you just said, does that mean that uh, under this expansive model, one shouldn't account for shareholders? Well, I think the struggle to say which of the two 
is correct is a natural struggle. It's, it's what we want to do. We want to arrive at a way of seeing one versus the other. Um, but unfortunately, I think they are both there and they're, they're difficult. The, 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 the demand that makes corporate governance so difficult is that they're in tension with each other. But by definition, people need to manage both the shareholder and the stakeholder interest. And at some points, those might be more likely to align. And at some points, those will appear in tension. And so thinking, recognizing that board members and the rest of us as humans are constantly dealing with paradoxes. And it's not about which one wins. It's about how do we actually navigate uh, and manage the tensions between them. So I think it's important to have these two poles, but also realize that there's different models of how we might engage the two poles. Um, I also love the fact that the language says effective entrepreneurial and prudent. Mm. I mean, how many times do we put entrepreneurial and prudent together Couldn't immediately after oxymoral. each other? <laughs> exactly. As if these are just, well, just do those three things yeah. and then, you know, this, off this you go shows, to your day job. This shows the challenge for directors. It's a tough job. How do you balance these, these competing demands? Could, 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 could we just, You've got to run the organization well. You've got to think to the future and you've got to be innovative and strategic. And at the same time, you've got to be careful. Could we just tease out a little bit the, these, these two models that you've talked about? I mean, how do they vary across different countries? Because there are actually a lot of international mm. variations in corporate governance, mm. um, a lot of institutional differences, and in institutional differences in the way we organize capitalism, of which corporate governance is one part. So there's that part. And there's in the second part is also to think, protecting the UK context, we may say we want to go from this narrower to this more broader notion of, of corporate governance and the role of boards and so on. But that may be a desire, an aspiration. And many businesses may say they're going in that direction, but, but perhaps their default option is narrower rather than wider. So there's, there's the international dimension. And is it easy to go from a narrower to a wider option? Yeah. So, so on the first point, I'd say um, we're very lucky to be here in Cambridge because, you know, the UK, I think, is, is acknowledged as being one of the places where the debate and the discourse around uh, corporate governance has been most lively. Um, a lot of thought has been um, given to, to ideas of corporate governance, the theories, but also the practice. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, kind of toing and froing between practitioners and academics and governments and so on. That's one of the great things about the, the, the nature of um, corporate governance debate here in the UK. Um, uh, but you're, you're right in saying, um, you know, this, what may work very, very well in the UK or the US, there's similarities, but also some kind of quite critical differences between the US and the UK. Um, you know, they, they, they may be very reasonable and, um, you know, well, well crafted and well suited to the, to the way that the markets work here and so on. Um, they don't necessarily translate well to other, other places. Um, and I think that actually has been one of the key problems we've seen over the last um, couple of decades when um, predominantly international institution investors who are mainly American and European stroke British um, go off to other markets, notably places like Japan, China and so on. Um, and they kind of expect the markets to work in the same way and governance to be enacted in the same way. And it's not. And what they try to do is they then try to affect the, the reform processes in these, these countries. But the, the ideas that they're bringing don't necessarily translate well into the kind of the local institutional setting that you find in these, these countries. And I've carried out a lot of 
uh, work in, in Japan and China looking at this. Um, and, you know, at a very kind of simple level, you know, how do you account for the role of employees in the governance system in Japan? It's not easy. In China, how do you account for the role of the Chinese Communist Party in the governance system there? Okay, they're, they're not they're not easy to to understand because we don't have necessarily have the frameworks to think through the um, uh, the issues uh, well. It, that's interesting. I mean, there's huge differences there, but I would also say there are differences even in France and Germany Absolutely. compared to the UK and um, US. So in France and, and and Germany, especially this this notion of um, separation of uh, directors from the managers and the board members from is not as distinct sometimes um, in family businesses or Mittelstaan, the whole of Germany, which is like the backbone of the German economy. They didn't really subscribe to this separation principle, which is more prevalent in the Anglo-Saxon model, I would say the US and US, uh, UK more. And over there, that's not as as distinct. So these kinds of overlaps are found, to be found much more in those businesses. I mean, I'm not saying that's worse or better, but I'm just saying they have a very different model, especially the family businesses, which are the backbone of the German economy, have a completely different logic of how what, what transparency means and how could you have these conflicting interests and be the owner and the manager and all these overlapping roles, which we would probably be a red flag in the US and UK systems that are considered completely acceptable to some degree in those, those economies. And I wonder if that's necessarily a a good corporate governance principle or not, perhaps according to certain. Uh, we've, we've got these these variations across space, varieties of capitalism and different corporate governance systems, and, and some you've told us about how, how they, the complexities here with dealing with different different stakeholders in, in different places. What about variations over time? Because there's an argument we're living in a very disruptive world, um, disruptive innovations. Uh, the geopolitical system is very very volatile. Um, and it goes back actually to, to, to your definition. You know, we want to be entrepreneurial, but we want to be prudent at the same time. That does suggest a degree of conflict. I mean, how, what, what are the challenges for corporate governance in a world of disruption? Shaz, you're, you're good on disruption. Well, uh, you're, you're yeah. a disruptor. Uh, more, more on the, uh, well, uh, there was a presentation yesterday about, about human resource disruptions. Who are the disruptive people that you hire in organizations? Disruption is at many levels and not just technologies or innovations. But... Um, I guess you talk about in terms of the new organizational forms that are emerging. And if you look at companies like um, sharing economy firms, um, um, Uber and Airbnbs of the world, I think there's always a regulatory lag in trying to keep up with what these organizational forms are. And, um, and, and firms try to take advantage of this regulatory lag because by the time regulation catches up, they're one step ahead. So Uber always had this do first, ask later. Uh, kind of uh, approach to uh, expanding its services because systems were not in place. Um, we've had some negative fall, fallouts from that where governance was kind of lagging these firms to fusion and by the time they catch up, for ex give you an example, and Uber is still um, was, was declared as a taxi company in Denmark um, versus a tech company and they had to pull out of Denmark. So the Danish government said this is this is a taxi company, and and they, they tried to resist that for a very long time. But that regulation had a completely devastating effect; they couldn't operate anymore. Whereas in the UK, we still have lawsuits against whether Uber is, it, is to be allowed, is licenses to be renewed or not. So it seems like regulatory uh, space is, is 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 always struggles to keep up with the pace of new technological forms 
disruptive innovations, disruptive firms, disruptive technologies that just do it first and then figure out, okay, we need to probably some governance around this. Um, by the time they figure out that's gone one step ahead. So that's a challenge, I think, that we face in that particular world. Jennifer. Although, although you know, it's very popular to say change is unprecedented now and, you know, yeah. all of, point to all of these features. Um, but I think we would find many generations prior to us who would have also said the same thing. Change yeah. is unprecedented because of all sorts of other things. And so I think even with this example, it's very interesting that there are different regulatory approaches to even the same firm. I think the fact that firms are able to now establish simultaneously in multiple countries and geographies around the world um, is somewhat unprecedented, the rate at which this can happen. But uh, your example of Uber, you know, part of it is the mere fact of it's actually human nature. Um, going back to this original, um, you know, sort of the agency problem, right? It's human nature to take advantage of a gap and it need not be a regulatory gap, it just need to be opportunistic. And so um, to some degree, uh, you know, the problems that we keep seeing around um, things that firms are suddenly disclosed to have done, um, you know, they're, they're sort of human nature. They're as old as the hills. And so we can, we can quibble about geographical and temporal differences, but I think that that is actually the commonality. Simon, do you, yeah, so disruption, I, is this time different though? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I agree with both, with both those points. I think they're, they're, they're right. I mean, you know, the, the fundamental issues um, are kind of common across time and across space to, to a large extent. But there is there are some, I think, qualitative differences today, particularly given the form that some types of companies are taking. Um, a good case in point, I think, is Facebook. Um, on the 25th of July, um, the share price of Facebook fell by $120 billion in one day. 20% of its value was wiped off uh, the the, you know, the market in a, in, in a day. And actually since then, since 25th of July, we're now middle of November um, 2018, um, another 20% of value has been, has been lost. Um, and it begins to raise, you know, lots of kind of questions. Are they, you know, is it just to do with, you know, changes in users, lack of ad revenue and so on and so forth? Or are there fundamental governance problems um, at the company? Um, is the board properly equipped to deal with the data breaches and data misuse issues? Um, is Zuckerberg too strong? I mean, he, he owns 64% of, uh, of the voting shares of the company. Is there anyone on the board who's able to actually really get his attention and ask, you know, ask him the kind of difficult uh, questions? Yeah. Um, and we've got lots of these types of similar companies. I mean, we've already talked about um, Uber, mm -hmm. Tesla as well. I mean, we've had problems with Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it looks like, you know, f from a distant uh, observer that he's, he's struggling at the moment. Um, uh, and OK, maybe that at one level, that's a personal and individual um, issue, but it's also a governance issue. I mean, why doesn't he have a board around him on this very, very important disruptive company that can support him and make sure that he doesn't make these crazy statements that are fraudulent? I mean, the SEC has, uh, has come out and said that, you know, it was um, it was fraudulent to to kind of say that he would secured the funding for uh, to take Tesla Tesla private. And the really interesting point in this particular case, the Tesla case, is the SEC has come to an arrangement with um, Elon Musk that addresses governance issues. The solution has been governance. It's it said 
Um, it's fined him $10 million or whatever, but it said you can no longer be the chairman and chief exec. You have to have someone to balance your power on the board. They haven't disqualified him from being a director. They've said, we value your entrepreneurship and your vision and you know all these kind of things. It's, that's really good, but we need to have some balance in there. So you need to appoint a chairman and you need to appoint two independent directors. And I think that's really, really interesting. But does that suggest that on one side, you can say global technology is creating challenges for governance, but on the other side, it may be improving global governance because actually when think when other individuals or firms or organisations behave badly, the information is out there very, very quickly yeah. and it improves the reaction. You can't, well, hopefully you can't hide because, of course, we also live in a world of, of, of anti-fact, fake news, fake news <laughs> and uh, artefact rather than fact. But yeah. um, is, is actually is better information must be a part of the oxygen for better global governance. Yeah, and it's also a, chain, a change in the nature of power, I think, which, which oh. we're beginning to kind of be able to grasp. Um, I mean, I think particularly, you know, if we, th- we think about disruption in terms of social, the, the power of social media here, um, it's very easy and quick to get information out. And moreover, you end up with these kind of network power effects. Suddenly you can, you can motivate and bring in hundreds of kind of relevant, sometimes even millions of, 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 of people and bring this pressure to bear on companies and so on. So there's a really important governance issue kind of going on there, which I think is, is still kind of under-researched and not really well, well understood, but clearly is very important. Companies are coming to us here at the Judge Business School and saying, we need to know how to deal with, 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 with these, these things. We haven't experienced them before. You know, rather than just having to deal with the markets and the shareholders and so on and so forth, we're having to deal with public opinion in a way that we weren't before. It's not just journalists. And I would say not just public opinion, but employees, because they're the consumers. So I'm thinking of uh, Google as an example, and I don't know the governance facts behind it, but certainly a gross misuse of power, and Andy Rubin is let go. Now, interestingly enough, that story was broken through investigative reporting on the part of the New York Times, so it wasn't just social media, but the reaction from employees was very quick and very clear when they all walked out around the globe um, in opposition to that decision that had been made um, around his around his his release, shall we say? Um, so so the information spreads very quickly, and the information gets into the hands not just of the bystanders, the public or pressure groups, but also employees who are a key um, stakeholder who, you know, many firms obviously have recognized as a key stakeholder, but the way in which they consume information, the opinions that they're allowed to have and form and generate and share with each other, I think is, is a little different. I think Google also met resistance when they were trying to, or well, they're still trying to get back into the Chinese market but through this modification of trying to impose some censorship and some restrictions on what can be searched or not. So that would give them an entry into the Chinese market and the employees are furious, we don't want to do that. It would be a violation of what Google does and that's a debate that's still being contested by that. This gets us into another related area, but whether corporate governance systems and boards particular can generate cultural change or whether they are sort of agents for conservatism. I mean, there is certainly concern about the composition of many boards. Um, They tend to be male-dominated and they tend to be dominated by a certain sort of male. So there's a compositional effect, but also can they have a more of a broader effect to develop a cultural change of an organisation? Jennifer. So I think this is worth um, 
visiting an older example, not a Google, Facebook, et cetera, Uber kind of example, but um, I'm talking about um, an organization which in 1987 placed a um, woman on the board. Uh, the woman is Jill Kerr Conway. She, I believe at the time she was president of Smith College, which is a women's college in the US, and the company is Nike. Now, Jill Kerr Conway is not an athlete. Um, she self describes herself as a jock, um, but she was an expert on women's issues. And I don't know the exact sequence of events that led Phil Knight, who was then CEO and obviously co-founder of the company, to choose to put her on the board. But I think the question of can that engender culture change, if we look over the very long period of time, um, it did, because at that time and subsequently, Nike was being faced with a lot of criticism for um, uh, you know, labor rights, labor relations in its supply chain. Um, and it was Jill Kerr Conway who happened to visit Indonesian factories in their supply chain while she was um, nearby in Australia, her home. Um, and she started seeing things that no one else had seen. And she realized that indeed in these factories, um, literally, the workers did not speak the same language as the managers, and so they could not understand, they could not advocate for themselves. Um, she was able to mobilize through her academic network, Jill Kirkconway's academic network, um, a group that could do 67,000 interviews over a period of time to really understand what was going on in the supply chain. So I think if a board is willing and bold enough to place someone different on, on the board and to give them the purview to not have the answers and to start asking the questions. Um, and in this case, sort of seed the opportunity for them to chart, start to treat the supply chain very differently. Um, they then hired a head of corporate responsibility who was the first person to sit down with one of their key, um, one of the key advocacy groups that had been critiquing them. So this idea that there is a board person who does things a little differently, thinks a little differently, um, asks the questions, enables others to ask questions, over the long period of time, we see now Nike is in a completely different position around um, social and particularly environmental sustainability to the point where they've very fully taken on those issues um, to the core of their strategy and their product design. Simon. I think this is a, a really great example, actually, of um, the changing um, nature and focus of, of, of boards. I mean, I think it's fair to say 20 years ago, um, the expectation of a board member was, as you described, Michael, someone with grey hair, Savile Row suit, because of course they were a man. Um, You're describing and, um, me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, with a particular educational background and so on and so forth. And they will have served their years um, in the company. They'll, they'll have deep knowledge of the particular companies or industries that they've, 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 they've worked in. That's why they were appointed, you know, with a safe, safe pair of hands. But that's not good enough now. Um, I think, the, you know, the... The, the nature of um, companies and our understanding of their role in society has changed uh, enormously. And therefore, what we expect from boards has, has changed enormously. And what I think Jennifer was describing here is this, the importance that, that's being attributed to the kind of boundary spanning role of board members. You know, it's not enough just to focus inward on the company. It's thinking about its relationships with wider society, with environment, with, um, you know, the future 
you know, there's a temporal uh, aspect to this as well. You know, the way that kids are coming up and, you know, their expectations and needs and so on and so forth. So, um, so diversity has become a really, really, really hot topic. Um, and it starts with, it has started with, with women. I mean, it's kind of to some extent a, an easy um, target. And we've seen, for example, here in the UK, 2011, 12, 12% of uh, boards were comprised of women. Today, it's around about 25% for FTSE 250 companies. Um, so huge strides have been made. Um, but there's also some criticism of that. Um, it looks like, for example, there are a number of, of women who have got multiple board positions. So there's a kind of question of whether you know, there's overboarding. And also some companies, there'll be a report produced in the next couple of weeks, uh, which says that you know, there's possibly some tokenism going on, this idea of one and done. You kind of you appoint your token woman to the board and that's it, you've, you've, you've met the quota. So these things kind of are being addressed, but imperfectly uh, at the moment. And it then raises the issues, which I, I know Shaz um, has some uh, knowledge of, so maybe I'll let him talk about, of diversity more broadly. You know, it's, it's not just about men and women. It's about, you know, how we represent the, in, the broader interests of society, I think, at the top of organisations. Well, actually, I mean, I generally support there should be more women on the board, like that goes without saying. Norway was the uh, pioneer in that and mm -hmm. other countries have followed suit. But you're right. I mean, diversity is broader than just gender. So it's the type of personalities, the type of people that could be multiple dimensions of, uh, of, um, of diversity. So you could have alpha types in men or women. Uh, uh, one argument that you can be made about why a lot of women appointed on boards start to behave like the people they are supposed to oppose. So there have been some studies showing that these women behave like that stereotypical male, white, and, and that happens because they're a minority sometimes and the pressures of having all these other colleagues who are not like but the other, other type induces them to actually adapt to that behavior. So maybe the fact that there'll be increasing numbers of women then they won't have to conform or adapt to the dominant sort of regime or dominant norm in that board. So it's just, a, just an argument that perhaps when these numbers rise to 40, 50 above, then you don't have those women who actually start conforming to the exact behaviors that they're supposed to challenge and, and disrupt. So they just adapt and conform, which defeats the whole purpose of adding a different uh, type of, uh, uh, well, diversity to the board because, well, that's not being achieved by, by those types of uh, additions, I would argue. Yeah, that, I mean, the, the, the example that I shared, A, it was a woman being placed on the board, but, but I, I think more importantly, it was the permission she was given <laughs> by others to think differently and to act differently and to ask different questions. And when we, what we do know about, about diverse groups and diversity on, on all sorts of metrics um, is that, you know, they have less of a tendency toward groupthink. There's more of a way in which different ways in which people make decisions, different ways in which they characterize risk, different factors that they even consider to be risky mm -hmm. um, show up. But that only happens, as you said, Shaz, if actually the voices are there, not yeah. just the bodies. And mm -hmm. I think Norway is a great example where with 40% um, as a quota for the number of women on boards, um, that actually does seem to, anecdotal evidence says that they seem to be able to have a voice and to speak up and to support um, each other in, in doing so. And, and of course, I totally agree, gender is only one of the ways in which that diversity needs to show up. But I think that's critical that 
boards need to enable these different ways of asking questions. That doesn't need, mean they need to always answer them differently. Mm -hmm. Remember, we're talking about prudence and entrepreneurship, but you're going to, a diverse group is going to give you a better opportunity to navigate between those. I'm conscious of the time, so I, I, as one final topic I want to raise with you all, and that, that's really what, what is the role of government in all of this? Because um, we want our firms to behave better. We want them to behave entrepreneurial and prudent if they can achieve both. But is there a, well, they often resort to type uh, and often just want to maximise profits and often maximise short-run profits and perhaps incomes for some executives. Is it, are, are governments always catching up? Um, I, I'm reminded that in 1973, um, the Prime Minister, uh, Edward Heath, described T Tiny Rowland as the unacceptable face of capitalism. We can roll forward to 2016 and the House of Commons Committee described Sir Philip Green, uh, and when we're, while we're taping, he is Sir, still Sir Philip Green, as the unacceptable face of capitalism. Mm. Um, uh, can governments, are governments always trying to catch up as businesses find new ways to perhaps achieve their prime objectives, which may not be according to what the desirable corporate governance mechanisms we discussed today. Simon. Governments do have an important role to play in the governance of, uh, of, of companies. But the, the question to me is, you know, at what level? Should it be, for example, when we look at China, you know, the, the government through the Chinese Communist Party is actually actively engaged in, in the affairs of, um, of, of, of many companies. Uh, and that may work in that particular environment uh, very well. I doubt whether it would work well in the UK and the, and the US. I mean, I think there's lots and lots and lots of arguments that we can, we can, we can cite to, 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 to say why it would actually be um, probably quite detrimental. You know, particularly if we're thinking about you know making sure that our firms are entrepreneurial and innovative and uh, and and so on, maybe they'd be too prudent, um, yeah. which would be a serious serious problem. Um, no, I think I think government has an important role in in setting the context, uh, in making sure that the rules and the processes and so on are appropriate. Um, and I think in the case of the UK, we're doing a relatively good job. Um, in terms of making sure that the Financial Reporting Council at the moment has, um, I, kind of, I suppose, oversight for the, for, the, for the governance rules. The stock exchanges as well play a really, really important role. And the government at a certain level um, is also involved. I mean, um, Theresa May, actually, I know she's been sidetracked a lot by uh, Brexit um, issues uh, recently, but when she came to power, one of the things that she did say she wanted to focus on was making sure that the UK is able to create the conditions for really good entrepreneurial um, uh, and safe, prudent uh, or, or organisations. So I think at that level, government um, is, is important, but it's part of the parcel. You know, we need to make sure that we're involving all of the uh, important uh, stakeholders uh, in creating a, a good governance, good effective governance uh, system. I agree it's part of the parcel. I mean, I think we also need to remind ourselves, and there have been some recent studies that show this, that actually um, good governance does pay off in the long run. So there's some important studies that have been coming out recently showing um, the extent to which there were, for example, board seats allocated for corporate responsibility or um, 
or uh, stakeholder consultations included um, in firms in the 1990s that once you follow those firms through over a you know, 15 plus year period, you can see that the ones who were more outward looking, who were more prudent in that sense, who were more ahead of the issues, actually outperformed their peers in terms of stock market and accounting performance. And these use matched samples, so they account for industry, they account for all sorts of other things. So, so there is a role for um, organizations themselves having within them the capacity to to look ahead, to think ahead, and to to have their fingers on the issues because ultimately they're the ones who are going to respond to them. Is there still a role for government? Um, yes, of course. I think governments will always, by definition, be catching up. The fact that they do catch up is what's important. Um, they then might reset the rules of the game, but then they hold very publicly to account those who violated, and that I think creates a social sanction. So whether the rules themselves are still catching up, the fact that they that they are that there are some rules and that others will see, um, you know the risk associated with certain types of behaviors I think is crucial. So they provide a kind of backstop. I don't think we can ever expect governments to get ahead. Very topical use of the word backstop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Shaz. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, in the sense, of course, the role of governments is, is also uh, context dependent. So, I mean, if you're in a kingdom or if you're in an emirate like UAE, or you mentioned China, the role of the government is obviously going to be different. And in a country like the US, any action by the government is suspicious or interventionist, whether it's Obamacare or gun control. Oh my God, the government is interfering in my life. So there's a fundamental um, attitude towards government being, uh, not, should not be interfering with um, corporates or people or at all kinds of levels. So there's a, there's a context dependent uh, variable there of the role of the government. But I think the governments, I mean, when you mentioned entrepreneur, entrepreneurship and, and prudence, um, I, we're doing some study with the, with the uh, car industry, me and Eden here, and um, it, it, it seems like companies take government regulations very seriously because they have to. Um, and um, for example, the, the, the regulation in the UK that you will have no diesel and petrol cars by 2000. 35 or is it 40, there will be zero petrol and diesel cars. And if you see a company like Jaguar Land Rover, that's, that's completely changed their attitude towards the transition from petrol and diesel polluting cars to less polluting electric cars. So as much as they like to be innovative, as much as they like to be entrepreneurial, this single piece of legislation is driving, is, has put them in a frenzy. Sometimes governments can actually play a pretty strong role in the way companies are run and governed, including their entrepreneurial activity, because companies take the regulation really seriously. That's just something they have to take seriously. It's a very interesting point that we should discuss in the future, a topic that regulation can also drive innovation yes, and entrepreneurship, as well as many people perceive it actually Next restricts it, yeah. innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah, and that's a very important topic for a future discussion. But I am conscious that we've run out of time. I'd like to thank my colleagues for our interesting discussion today, especially as we're taping this at a very busy time as it's the end of term here in Cambridge. Thanks to all our listeners and we hope that you can join us the next time. Thank you. <laughs>